Welcome to the public morality. Back in December, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that former President Donald Trump was ineligible to be president under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and should not be listed on the primary ballot. The U.S. Supreme Court recently heard the oral arguments for that case. Attorneys for the former president also asked the court to overturn the D.C. Circuit ruling that rejected Trump's claims of presidential immunity from election subversion charges. To help us sort all of this out, we welcome back American University law professor Stephen Wormiel. Professor Stephen Wormiel, welcome to the public morality. Glad to be here. Uh, Professor Wormiel, short of providing a full-throated prediction, how would you assess uh, the nine Supreme Justices uh, in the case of Trump v. Anderson? So um, my impression of the oral argument was that there were quite a number of ways that the justices could reject the Colorado Supreme Court's decision Um, and that the the suspense is not whether they will, but more which ground they will select um, to to basically put Trump back on the Colorado bell. Now, I I know it's not... um popular to to predict what Supreme Court justices might do. Uh, But it's pretty much, uh, I have not, in fact, I've not heard anyone suggest that the court might rule other than what you suggested. What makes you so confident that this is the way the court will go on this particular case in terms of overturning the Colorado uh, ruling? Well, there was, uh, I mean, I'm I'm not the most expert at following Supreme Court oral arguments and and making predictions, but but I have been to quite a lot of arguments, and uh, you know, over the past several decades, and um, this one just seemed really lopsided. It seemed like all of the questioning um, was exploring the ways in which Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment doesn't apply to Donald Trump, and and almost nobody, maybe only Justice Sotomayor seemed to to pose questions that might lead to applying section three and so it just seemed very lopsided and 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 as i said there there are the the justices seem to be exploring numerous different theories for how they could uh, achieve the result of, of overturning the colorado supreme court decision and and um just not a lot of questioning in the other direction. So, uh, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not the best tea leaf reader and, and, and I don't necessarily always think that what you hear at oral argument is tea leaves, but this one just seemed so um, one-sided that um, it, it, you know, it sort of leads, leads to an inescapable conclusion that they're going to look for a way to, to put Trump back on the ballot. Well, short of your comments uh, here, along, uh, as you mentioned, Justice Sotomayor, I don't recall anyone else even raising the implications or even grappling with the historical significance of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Am I am, am I right about that? They just, the justice just didn't seem want to touch that. I think that's right. Um, they, they, I thought the oral argument was very... Um, what's the right description, sort of nuts and bolts focus. You know, how do we define an officer of the United States? Why isn't the president listed in the in the list of people to whom it applies? Um, how do we, you know, who decide that this was an insurrection? But but not a lot of discussion of why that section was adopted or, or you know, how it related to the to the post-Civil War United States and, and what they were thinking about. And, and that, despite the fact that there were a number of very impressive um, friend-of-the-court briefs filed by prominent historians um, exploring and exposing the 
the history of the provision, um, the court didn't, I, I won't say they weren't moved by it, but they certainly didn't seem interested in it. One of my takeaways, um, and I'm certainly not well-versed um, in the law, but one of my takeaways is the intellectual inconsistency of those um, who br- embrace a originalist or textualist approach. For, for example, I do recall Chief Justice John Roberts asking whether the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to increase federal power, which, regardless of the intent, it certainly has done that. But ironically, wasn't Chief Justice Roberts uh, the person who wrote the opinion in Shelby County v. Holder, which sort of gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, giving power back to the states? Um, what do you make of that exchange? I mean, is, is, is that a reflection of intellectual inconsistency, or is that even a criteria that we should hold to um, jurisprudence? I mean, it's a very good question. Um before Roberts in Shelby County, Justice Kennedy had written the uh, the previous opinion that, that set us in that direction of um, limiting the Supreme Court's power under the 14th Amendment and giving more, or so, I'm sorry, li- limiting um, Congress's power and giving more authority back to the state. That was a case called City of Bernie versus Flores. And then Chief Justice Roberts kind of followed suit in the Shelby County opinion. Um, most, I, this is not an answer, to be honest, but, but, but an observation that most of the time when we talk about the, the Congress's ability to enforce the 14th Amendment as a matter of federal power, we're talking about Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, the section that provides that no state shall deprive any person of equal protection of the laws and no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. It, 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 just as most of us had never really paid any attention to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment before a few months ago, most of us had never thought about how the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which gives Congress the power to enforce the provisions of the amendment, most of us had never thought about how Section 5 would apply to this, the, the ballot questions in Section 3, the questions that we're wrestling with now. So, you know, it's possible that Chief Justice Roberts would say, well, I'm not being inconsistent. These are different questions, but but in fact, there did seem to be an inconsistency there in terms of how you think about who who's wielding power under the 14th Amendment. Well, let's let's have a little fun here. Um, you've already um, made us aware that, you, that you, you're not the most pronounced uh, t- uh, reader of tea leaves. However, we're going to put you on the spot here with a little thought experiment. <laughs> so Let's assume that former President Trump wins in November. It is also a Democratic majority in the Senate. But during that, before he actually won, he was found guilty in Judge uh, Tanya Chutkin's court for election subversion. Uh, Could the Senate then hold up... um, the election process, and uh, and then maybe harken back to um, uh, Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. So you're asking me questions that I would consider to be too hard to even put on my constitutional law exam. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> We're but okay, having let's, fun here. We're let's do fun. it. Let's, All let's right. do so, it. Um, All right. <laughs> so there was a very interesting. Well, I'll, I'll come to your question, but let me make this observation that relates. Go right ahead, to, sir. Um, there was a very interesting exchange involving, I think, primarily, I forget whether it was Alito or Gorsuch during the oral argument, who kept pointing out that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment talks about holding office, not running for office. Um, and, and so, 
the suggestion and in, in bringing that up during the argument was that this whole idea is misplaced because even if it applies to Trump or any former president, um, it doesn't apply to being a candidate for office. It applies to your eligibility to actually hold that office if you're elected. So I think that sort of plays into the question you're asking. Um, that, that sort of opened the door to the idea that you keep Trump on the ballot, um, according to that view, because Section 3 doesn't apply to him as a candidate, but if he wins in November, is there a separate step in which we ask, well, is he eligible to hold office? Um, and so I think that plays into the question you're asking. Could the Senate um, um, step in and say, um, you know, when we're invoking Section 3, I actually think it would have to be the whole Congress, though, not the not just the Senate, but but I think it's it's implausible. It's not likely, but it is not impossible that if Trump won the White House and the Congress had Democratic majorities in both houses, that those Democratic majorities could start this all over again and say, well, okay, we conceded the point that he was allowed to stay on the ballots because Section 3 wasn't about running for office. But Section 3 is about eligibility to hold office. And so now we're starting all over again to raise a question about whether he engaged in, in insurrection against the United States and is ineligible to actually be sworn in as president, even if he was elected president. Again, I, I think... That's obviously a very complicated scenario, and, and, and I wouldn't predict that that's likely to happen, but I don't think it's impossible or, or totally improbable. Should it happen, we won't even ask you back. We're just going to play this section of our conversation today. <laughs> it's, it, no, <laughs> it was great. No, it, 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 you know, one of my takeaways from listening to the oral arguments uh, and also some of the talking heads before and after is there's a desire to assume um, a case such as uh, Trump versus Anderson was heard strictly on constitutional merits, but it's also political. And do the justices run the risk of pretending they are not influenced by the political? Does it devalue the legit legitimacy of the court to pretend it's strictly the constitutional merits that they're concerned with. Well, I think the politics comes into it in a number of different ways, and is maybe a more complicated question than than the, the the simple form of that question is the court being too political. Um, there is a question that has been raised by many and, and discussed widely about whether if somebody's going to be kicked off the ballot, that ought to be up to the voters um, and, and, and the democratic process and not decided by an unelected, unaccountable court. And that, to me, brings politics into the question, again, in a, in a slightly more complicated way. I mean, that is a fair question. Not that we should ignore the Constitution if the Constitution dictates an answer, a clear answer, but uh, it, it's not irrelevant to think about in our democracy, how does this play out? If, if there are millions of voters who want this person to be their candidate, um, is it the place of the Supreme Court to say, well, that may be, but it's not about the popular will, it's about narrowly how we interpret the Constitution and interpreting the Constitution says he can't be on the ballot. Um, you know, again, I think that's a more complicated question about about where politics comes into play. We, we as you well know, we as a society are, are now constantly debating whether the Supreme Court is being too political. But I think in this particular instance, 
um, the the relative merits of judicial interpretation of the Constitution versus the the functioning of a democracy, uh, an, an electoral democracy, um, you know, is an important question that the justices probably should take into account. And, and again, especially because it's, it, it doesn't seem to be 100% clear that the language of the Constitution provides an answer to this question. Um, following up um, with another another um, thought experiment, not quite as uh, pronounced as the last one, but looking at this long term, if the court sided with the Colorado Supreme Court, what would prohibit bad faith actors not looking solely at, at this case, but so you know, just looking at it from a partisan lens, but what would prohibit bad faith actors to do likewise to, to President Biden and and to hold him off on, say, a state like Wisconsin, which would be a, a, a battleground state in November? Does this open the would it, would that would that decision open the door for that kind of behavior? Well, Trump has made that argument, and 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 some of those around. Trump, some Republican senators have made that argument, and then some justices asked about that as well. Chief Justice Roberts um, posed a, I'm not even sure it was a question, it seemed like it was more of an observation that this would, um, um, you know, uh, let the genie out of the bottle and, and that everybody could do that to everybody else. Um I guess I have a couple of thoughts about that. Um, the, the, the first thought um, is that just because people are capable of being bad actors and there are bad actors in our system doing bad things doesn't mean that everybody else has to behave the same way. Um if, you know, if your question is purely, can it happen? Yes. The answer is yes. Um, if the question is, do we have moral values in our society that suggest that even if you think it was unfair to treat Trump in a particular way, that the answer is not to unfairly retaliate and exacerbate the abuse of the system. Um, you know, that that's an answer. Maybe it's not the prevailing answer, but it ought to be. Uh, because uh, siding with the Colorado Supreme Court could could potentially, because I know one of the justices raised this, embolden, say, 51 state elections to act in very, very different ways to elect a president. Um, some of the justices seem to be wary of placing additional pressure on American democracy by siding with the Colorado Supreme Court. How did you see that? Is that, is that, again, is that, is that more or less an off ramp for the Supreme Court or is that a legitimate concern? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, um, there is a question about the fairness of, of this was raised even by liberals like, like Elena Kagan about the fairness of one state getting to dictate um, how a national election and a national issue is going to play out. And, and I think that is a valid concern. It may also be a, a good off-ramp. Um, although, remember, I think we presume that they're going to have to write an opinion explaining why they're um, overturning the Colorado Supreme Court decision. And so, and, you know, an off-ramp, I, I guess if the question is, what do we mean by an off-ramp? You know, an off-ramp, to me, sort of connotes a, an easy way out. But it has to be an easy way out that can be explained in a, in a principled or, or, you know, hopefully non-laughable way. Um, and, and so I think there are different off ramps. Which one is most appealing 
or most useful to them, I think, is, is still a little bit of a mystery. Um, so I think what you're saying and what some of the justice raised is certainly a legitimate um, concern and also potentially an off-ramp. Uh, what? Yeah, well, go ahead. Do you, you know, go and finish, please. I was just going to say what the justices can write with a straight face. Um, you know, I think is a little more complicated. Well, I was going to say, and, and, and that was a perfect segue. Your last response that when you when you when you just said what the justices can write with a straight face. I was going to say, don't forget, there is this thing called Bush v. Gore still sort of. <laughs> hanging hanging out there and if you can write that with a straight face you know my opinion and and then put the proviso that this can't be used for for any kind of precedent that that to me is quite telling so (laughs) anything's possible is all i'm saying so maybe we're looking we're we're looking at the wrong standard whether you can do it with a straight face or not is no longer a relevant question (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) um it seems to me sir that behind your answers in our conversation today is um, the dark shadow cast by the electoral college. If there is no electoral college, we're not having this conversation. And, and, and because the United States is the only um, democratic society that, that invokes this unique principle, um, I, I guess are we going to continue to have these kinds of questions as we evolve? Because I don't see anything, the, in the in the in the making that's going to say we're going to get rid of the electoral college. Um, I think the answer is yes. We're going to keep having these issues and these questions. Um, my view would be you can't get rid of the electoral college without amending the constitution. And um, you know, although Thomas Jefferson said we should we should rewrite the constitution in every generation. Um, we're we're terrified of amending the Constitution because it's a hornet's nest. Um, you have your amendments, and I have my amendments, and somebody else has their amendments, and and um, uh, the Constitution, you know, doesn't come out looking like anything that we recognize. Uh, and so I think we're, I think one of the fundamental problems in our democracy and our ability to govern ourselves is that the Constitution is in need of amendment, but we can't do it because we're in this political stalemate. Is it possible to have a ruling that may not be in keeping with constitutional mores, but serves the larger interests of democracy? Are we talking about this particular issue, or, or are you, or, or are you I'm, thinking I'm, more I'm broadly? Speaking, I'm, I'm speaking more broadly in a macro context. It could be this issue, but I'm speaking more. This issue sort of prompted that question for me, so we can speak more broadly if you like. Um, so let me let me get it again. So an issue that that is not necessarily in keeping with the constitutional mores, but but is but serves but is this, public interest. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I mean, I, I would make the argument. Uh, I would make the argument. Shank versus U.S. 1919 allegedly did that, <laughs> and then I put uh, allegedly uh, because the country was at war at the time. So is that does that is that even plausible? Or that just is that just something that a non-law professor would ask you? <laughs> no, it's plausible. Um... It, it, it's. I'm thinking that it's a hard question to answer without a particular context. And then when you add a particular context, there may be other factors at play or other explanations. So Schenck, for example, um, is, it was inconsistent with our current view of, of free speech, but there wasn't much free speech law at the time. And so with hindsight, we look back on, on the, the trio of cases decided then, um, um, Schenck and Debs and Frower, and we say that's not consistent with, with our understanding of the First Amendment. 
But we didn't have much of an understanding of the First Amendment in 1919. Um, so, so if you add that context, it sort of changes the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think whether there's a a more pure example to to raise that point. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm, nothing's jumping out at me immediately. Um, um, you know, I think the the Warren Court justices might say that their um, adoption of various implied rights, privacy, and, and the like. Um, we're not necessarily inconsistent with the Constitution, but but we're not clearly dictated by the language of the Constitution, and yet they thought that what they were doing was important to serve the interests of our democracy and the American people. I don't know if that's a great example, but that's sort of what comes to mind. Uh, no, it's a, it's fine. It's great. No. Um, let's turn our attention to... Um, uh, Another uh, another impending case, which um, is uh, President Trump's Im- immunity uh, case. He just that there um, his lawyers just filed a, a, a petition to to the court. Uh, what what's the merits of 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 the immunity cases? You understand them, sir? Well, they're you know they're on the one hand on the Trump side of it there is an argument that you want the president to, to be able to act sort of freely and unconstrained um, during his term as president without worrying about whether there are going to be, you know, criminal justice consequences after the fact. Um, and and that's not a crazy idea. The crazy idea is that is that there is a you know a notion of blanket absolute immunity. Um, if you think back to Trump's campaign in, in twenty sixteen when he he stood on the stairs of the of Trump Tower and said I could shoot somebody dead on Fifth Avenue and and be found not guilty or not not be prosecuted um sort of fast forward that hypothetical and say okay he's the president of the united states and shoot somebody dead in the oval office um not in self-defense and 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 then claims that he can't be prosecuted for that because he was acting as president um that seems like a pretty crazy idea to carry it to that length. Um, um, but that's what he's suggesting. He's suggesting pretty much that anything he does um, is, is, you know, is, is immune from criminal prosecution after he leaves office. And that just seems, I think, to strike uh, a chord of, of carrying it way too far. You know, there's a fascinating moment. I don't know if you remember the the movie Frost Nixon. That's exactly where I was going. I was. <laughs> you're. Uh, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish it's, the story. It, I mean, it's a it's a great example, right? Franklin Jella is is playing Nixon, and um, um, the the David the character playing David Frost asks Nixon a question and Nixon says, well, if the president does it, it can't be illegal. Um, and that's, you know, that's a prescription for a, for a monarch. That's a prescription for a king. And that's not who the United States is. Um, and I think that line in the movie shocks people and it shocked people when, when Nixon said it in real life. Um, and it should still Shock us. And again, we want a president to be free to lead. We want a president to be free to make um, whatever hard decisions presidents need to make. Um, and and we don't want them, I, I think it's true, to 
fear that everything they do may be the subject of criminal recrimination after the fact. But it can't be that when a president is overtly breaking the law, that that, that president would expect no consequences and would feel free to to continue to break the law. So that's the I think yeah. that's the, the kind of pros and cons. No, but it, it seems because I, 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 I was actually when you were giving your answer, I was thinking of, of the Nixon response. And I, I think that at least my view, it was less chilling to hear Nixon say it because he was a former president with no chance of running again. But but now we have a, a situation where in Trump's uh, uh, desire to uh, reenact uh, Grover Cleveland, how, how's that for a historical <laughs> tidbit? <laughs> um, he's making the argument of, of, of absolute immunity, which constitutionally speaking, it, 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 I understood the argument, again, I'm not an attorney, uh, I understood the argument to say that the president has a unique uh, position to uphold and defend the Constitution except for him or herself. That's how I hear the argument. And I, that just seems inconsistent with our democratic mores. Your thoughts? I, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, um, we don't want a president to feel that, that there is no criminal constraint on what a president can do. We, we, if a president steals funds, um, if a president shoots somebody in the Oval Office, if a president, you know, there are gray areas, right? I mean, if, if the, if the president is saying, I don't like this law passed by Congress, and I'm going to openly violate it because I disagree with it. And I think it's encroaching on my, powers as president, um, you know, maybe there's a fair question as to whether that's appropriate for a subsequent criminal prosecution. If it's a fight over separation of powers, that means the president is not obeying the law. That's, you know, that's a, that's a plane where I think Trump's argument may have some more credibility to it, but He's already told us he's going to break the law um, as soon as he's inaugurated for another term if he wins the election, right? He's told us he's going to openly use the Justice Department to retaliate against people. Um, there are there are numerous instances in which that will be illegal. Um, and, and it can't be that he can do that without any consequence. Talk about just the implicit danger should the court uh, rule in the former president's favor, the Supreme Court rule in the former president's favor of this of this immunity clause while as president, because we are talking because the court would be saying, yes, you can take documents as president and not give them back. Yes, um, you can subvert elections as president. So, I mean. Would would that ruling just beside the personal ramifications to the former president? I mean, how much would that alter our democracy if the court ruled in in the former president's favor? Well, I think it fundamentally risks changing the balance of power. I mean, the, you know, I think we as Americans don't spend enough time thinking about the 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 choices that the framers made 230 years ago about separation of powers and checks and balances and how you know today it all seems theoretical that those things were would protect us from becoming a monarchy with a with a powerful king and would preserve our democracy and we you know they barely even teach that stuff in, in schools anymore um uh, and I teach it in my constitutional law class, but I think people don't appreciate the importance of it. But, you know, if a president can say, for example, uh, the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, you know, Congress said don't spend any funds in this particular way, but I'm, the, I'm you know, my, my, I'm the president and my staff and I 
are going to ignore what Congress said because I'm the president and we think it's important to spend the funds the way I want to spend them as president. Um, that just, uh, you know, that's a fundamental change to the way our government works and, and risks becoming a, a hierarchical um, government where the president bears all the power. Um, and that's not who we traditionally have been. The, the executive branch has certainly grown more and more and more and more powerful over the decades, but um, there are still checks and balances, and, and this would sort of eradicate those checks and balances. I can, I can tell Congress I'm not going to do what, what the law is, and there's no consequence to me. Um, not not to devolve into a, a, a civics course here, but when you read the Constitution, clearly the framers rested the majority of the power of the responsibility in the legislative branch. Uh, I mean, that's just clear by just the responsibilities they, 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 they gave. So um, has it been that, especially during crisis, we the people sort of organically look at that single figure, hence the president, which sort of has emboldened the president with more power than than may have been originally granted or conceived. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. Um, the the language of the Constitution, you know, says Congress shall make the laws and the president shall execute the laws, and and um. That's a very different system than the system we have. Congress still makes the laws, but Congress delegates so much decision-making to the executive branch and the independent agencies that um, it's hard to find that picture of of an executive branch that's just carrying out the will of Congress anywhere in our constitutional system. I mean, almost every day you see a president exercising authority in some way that that um, seems like it's making law or making policy without specific um, guidelines from, from Congress. And that's sort of where we are. And, and, and I guess to your earlier question, that already skews our system in a way that gives enormous power and authority to the president. If you want to then add absolute immunity um, so that the only recourse is to impeach and convict the president in an impeachment trial, and and we don't ever have the votes to do that, um, you know, then there's no recourse. There's no accountability for the president at all. Well, following up, are we are we guilty also of putting things in the lap of the Supreme Court that the there should be the responsibility uh, of the other branches, namely the legislative branch? So, in lieu of the legislative branch taking responsibility, it's given to the court. The court makes a decision, and then. Whoever doesn't like the decision can say the court is legislating from the bench. Um, that's a pretty fair description. I mean, the, the when you live in a system in which the principal lawmakers can't really make laws because they can't agree with one another about almost anything, you sort of have, uh, I guess you have three options. Um, the first option is the president does it, but that's not supposed to be an acceptable answer because the president is supposed to be carrying out the, the will of Congress. The second option is we just don't do anything. Congress can't agree on laws, then, then we don't have laws. That doesn't seem to be a very satisfactory option because there are things that need to get decided and need to get done. And the third option is that the Supreme Court increasingly steps in to fill the void um, and and decide issues that perhaps were best resolved by Congress but seemingly can't be 
And that's, I think, where we are. I think the Supreme Court becomes more and more powerful and influential because of the inability of the other branches to to get down to the nitty-gritty of government. I want to go back specifically to the uh, President Trump's immunity case because I want to have you comment on, on one of the um, arguments that his legal team has put forth. Uh, the, the president is saying that he's having, while as president, he's having conversations with key advisors. And so what he is saying in some ways is protected under the First Amendment. Um, what what do you make of that argument? And 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 does it do you think it's plausible? I don't think it's an it's a totally incorrect argument, uh, and, and 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 it certainly is a significant argument. Um, the the Nixon tapes case decided by the Supreme Court in 1974, where the court ordered Nixon to turn over the recordings of his Oval Office conversations to a federal judge, to some degree offsets that argument. Um, And that wasn't about using those conversations to prosecute the president. But the Supreme Court made very clear that um, the government as prosecutor and former Nixon aides as criminal defendants were entitled, constitutionally entitled, to access to those tapes and transcripts because they needed them to, to in order to have a fair trial in the criminal prosecutions against those former Nixon aides. And that, to me, says that, that it's not an absolute claim on the part of the president. The president can't say the First Amendment protects all my conversations with my staff and, and, and in the Oval Office, um, because if that claim has already been overcome by the need to have access to that material if you're, if you're a criminal defendant, I think that that takes a pretty big chunk out of Trump's argument. Well, and to follow up on that, one of the arguments that they've made, as I understand it, is the president, the former president, lost confidence in White House counsel and retained outside counsel who coincidentally gave him a scenario of events that he found more appealing. How do do we negotiate that? Um, I mean, it's a tougher, it's a tougher question. Where is the attorney-client? Where's the line of attorney-client privilege? Um, it, it. I don't. I mean, there, there is case law on on that. I'm not an expert on the rules of professional responsibility, but I will say, clearly, a president can't just say, um, let's have a conversation, you're my lawyer, and tomorrow talk to somebody else and say, let's have a conversation, you're my lawyer. So one day it's Sidney Powell, and the next day it's Rudy Giuliani, and the next day it's somebody else, and the day after that it's somebody else. Um, you know, that's not, that makes a mockery of the idea that your conversations are privileged as attorney-client um, communication and i think that's what trump has done we we just i just had um michael isikoff and dan Kleiman on about a week or so ago and they were discussing their, their new book find me the votes and one of the things that michael isikoff said what was um that former president trump was going through attorneys till he found one who would say what he wanted to hear um, how can you do that? And then hide behind. Oh, but wait, I'm, I'm wait, I'm the president, so I can do that. I mean, that seems to be putting the president. Just that fact alone seems to be putting the president on a different plane than the rest of us. Right, it's putting the president above the law and it, and it, or above legal ethical standards, um, and it's hypocritical. 
the the code of professional ethics for lawyers I don't know whether it specifically addresses this point, but it's also worth noting that all of these people say he never paid them. Now, you know, I don't think attorney-client privilege is decided solely by whether you're paying your bills, but but in the model we're talking about of you add one today and another one tomorrow and another one the day after that and another one the day after that, and you're claiming that all of them are your attorneys and you're not actually paying any of them. You're in debt to all of them. Just can't, that can't be the way this works. <laughs> I, I guess sort of ironically, the, the, the ones who were compensated were not by directly by the president uh, will be the white house council. So, so, right. so I get, so then when we talk about this immunity, are, aren't we asked now I guess this immunity case sort of are we asked to make a distinction between Donald Trump, the individual, or as the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals said, citizen Trump and the office of the president? Um, we are, well, yes, I think. I mean, the, I think maybe that's a little too simple a line to draw. Um, I mean, his claim is that everything he did while he was president was within the scope of the office and should be protected from any kind of criminal prosecution. Um, and I think that the, that the response to that is, is no, when you commit illegal acts as president, by definition, that's not within the scope of your office, right? The, you have enormous power and authority and influence as president, but you don't have it. There's nothing in the Constitution that says, you know, the president is commander in chief, the president is head of state, and the president can break any law he wants. Um, so I guess we're talking about him in a sense as a citizen Trump when his actions were illegal. Um, because that's not part of the role of being president. Well, and, that, and that's actually what prompted that question. Because if 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 President Byron Williams, what a what a scary thought! But President Byron Williams, <laughs> if if I'm going to everyone, if I ignore my own count, White House counsel, just being paid by the people, and I'm just going to people to find someone who will say what I want to hear and I'm not compensating them as, as the allegations have been made. Am I not operating as citizen Byron in that capacity? I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is yes. Um, again, you know, law professors are good at finding gray areas. You, you know, the joke that we answer every question with it depends. Um, and and so yes, I think you're you're in a sense being citizen Trump, um, but there are gray areas, right? If I, I mean, the White House counsel is not supposed to be the president's tax lawyer advising him on on his taxes. On the other hand, if there are sort of official obligations as president in terms of taxes um you know is that a gray area does the white house counsel advise there in addition to whatever outside counsel the president hires um so but 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 overall i think when the president is sort of acting beyond the scope of his office which would include illegal action that he ought to be treated like anybody else uh, Professor Romil, you reminded me of a a, a, a a story that may be apocryphal attributed to Harry Truman, where he says, find me a one-armed economist. And you're like, what? He goes, I want a one-armed economist, because every economist that comes in here says, on one hand, you can do this. <laughs> on the other hand, you can do this. So <laughs> so I it sounds it sounds it sounds like the 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 Harry Truman dilemma that you're speaking of. Finally, um and I know you don't read uh, the tea leaves. Um, not where does this, how does this play out? 
before the pre- before our democracy, in your opinion, how does this how should this play out based on um, the health of our democracy? So uh, on the immunity case first, um, I I hope that the Supreme Court agrees to hear the case, and I hope that the Supreme Court rules resoundingly that that the claim of absolute immunity is is false and has no basis in in the Constitution, in, in precedent, um, or or in in the functioning of a democracy. Um, and I hope that that uh, the, the the Supreme Court in 1974 went out of its way to make the Nixon tapes case unanimous to send a clear signal. Um, and I hope that they can do that again. Um, in terms of the ballot case, um, I I think there are plausible arguments for Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment applying to Trump. But I think that the court will clearly decide that that the interests of our democracy are are better served by letting him stay on the ballot and letting the voters have a chance to have their say. Now, I don't think that'll necessarily be what the opinion says, and the opinion will come up with a constitutional explanation. But I think that will be part of what prompted the court to do what it does. I want to go back real quickly to your answer about immunity, because you you, you specifically said you hope the, the court will hear the case. Um, why do you want the court to hear it rather than just um, state the, 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 the current ruling? I mean, I, I, I think the, the, the three judges on the D.C. Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C., did an excellent job. They, you know, they come from different ideological backgrounds and points of view. They came together on a I think well researched, well written, um, well thought out opinion. But I think the question of the scope of presidential immunity ought to be decided by the United States Supreme Court and, and with a clear, unambiguous decision. Professor Steve Wormiel, sir, it's as always, it's, it's so great to have you on the public morality to, to help us understand. Um, which are increasingly complex times. So thank you for your time. I much appreciate it, sir. Thank you, Byron. Nice to be here again. Thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.